Well, good morning, and what a great day. What a great opportunity it is for us each and every week here at Grace Life to come and to sing the praises that are due our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then to look into his word. And as we're going through the Gospel of John as a church, I mean, we're learning more and more and more about Jesus and his life, and eventually his death, and his resurrection, and then his ascension, and then uh, what it is that Jesus will do. Uh, At some point in time, he will return, and uh, we look forward to that day. So let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. Our text for this morning is verses 22 through 30. And as you're turning, let me give you a little bit of an update. This room, this overflow room, should be operational next Sunday. So there should be chairs in there. There should be the monitor on the wall. That should be operational. It should be operational in the nursery and toddler room as there's going to be a new camera that's dropped down that will capture the service. That will be shipped down to the nursery and toddler room. And then this big white screen uh, will be taken down and there'll be a giant monitor that'll be placed on the wall behind me. And so there's a lot of changes. We thank the Lord for the means to be able to do this. Thank you so much for uh, all of your part in the finances of the church, but it's a nice upgrade and we're looking forward to that. And so next week, if you would like to sit over here, you're more than welcome to do so. And um, it's a nice extra space for us as a church as we continue to grow. And so we're, we're glad to be here this morning and we're glad to look into the Word of God. And as I said, our text for today is John chapter 8, verses 22 through 30. Well, back in the the late 1980s and into the 1990s, I was working for the Illinois Department of Agriculture, and because I was working directly for the director of the agency, among uh, many of the duties that were assigned to me, I was tasked with interviewing potential candidates for open positions within the department. So over the course of a several-year period, I literally interviewed thousands of people for various jobs, and I took the assignment very seriously. And so to prepare for a particular round of interviews, I would meet with the manager of the division who was seeking a new employee. I would receive from him or her the profile of the ideal candidate for the position. And so really, my task as the chief interviewer was to try and to find a perfect match, someone who fit the exact profile that they were looking for. As we come to our passage for this morning and we examine those who are publicly questioning and impugning Jesus, we're going to find a a perfect match of the profile of an unbeliever. And while this encounter was over 2,000 years ago, I think you're going to find a lot of similarities as to the profile of an unbeliever today. And so with that in mind, I want to read the text and then we're going to uh, look at it in more detail this morning as we do. But I'm going to start with verse 21 to gain the context here, and then we'll go through verse 30. Verse 21, then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin, for where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, meaning the Messiah, you will die in your sins. 
And so they were saying to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he was speaking to them about the Father. And so Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. This is a continuation of Jesus' encounter with the leaders of the Jews, in particular the scribes and the Pharisees. And so Jesus is still in the temple. This is a continuation of what we looked at last week. He's still in the temple, and those who are in attendance continue to engage with him. And most likely, those who are engaging with Jesus are the leaders, and so the leaders are probably doing most of the talking here. So as we take a look at this in more detail this morning, we're going to find four consistent elements in the unbelieving Jew's profile. Four consistent elements in the unbelieving Jew's profile. And the first, we find their sarcasm. The unbelieving Jew's sarcasm. Sarcasm is the use of irony to mock or to convey contempt. Again, verse 1 or 21, then he said again to them, I will go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. For where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus, as we have learned, as we have studied his life, Jesus was repulsed by condescending, self-righteous religious people. He had already sent shockwaves through the religious elite and all who follow them in unbelief. And if they do not turn to him in faith, he tells them that they will die in their sins. These kind of people, condescending, self-righteous, religious people, rarely look at their own life, but they're real good about looking at other people's lives. They are generally the most critical people that you can imagine. They love to look down on others. They love to tell people about all the things that they do. And uh, we had Brian read for us this morning out of the great Sermon on the Mount out of Matthew chapter 6. And there, Jesus is warning about these kinds of people, these kinds of religious people who love to stand on the street corners and pray and and to pray loudly so that everyone can hear. These are the people that that go up in the treasury at the temple and they, they put their money in and they stand around and they hover around the treasury so all can see that they're giving to the to the temple. Jesus says, none of that is important to me. None of that is important to me. If you want to talk to the Father, go to your room and go in private and speak to the Father. All this grandstanding, all of this grandiose language, all of this fake stuff, it repulses me. 
And so Jesus is encountering these people, these very same people, as he stands in the temple. So he says, all of you, if you do not turn to me in faith, if you do not believe in me, the promised Messiah, you'll all die in your sins. Stern, true language from Jesus, which means they would all receive what they deserve, right? An eternity in punish, of punishment, spiritual death instead of spiritual life, which Jesus was offering. And if you look at the language here, the leaders were using sarcasm to try and turn the people against Jesus. And this is what unbelievers do. This is what they do. It's part of their profile. They say, surely he's not going to kill himself, will he? Surely this teacher, this, this false prophet, isn't going to commit suicide, is he? You see, the Jews viewed suicide as uh, an immediate ticket to the lowest part of hell. And so when Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot come, they smugly turn around his statement and they sarcastically throw doubt to his authenticity. Now there's so much that we can say here, but, but first, nowhere in the Bible does it say that suicide is a ticket to hell. When I was in Bible college, I was uh, required to take a speech class, and so our speech teacher was teaching us about all the different kinds of speeches, and one of the speeches that he was teaching us about was a persuasive speech. And so he was trying to teach us how, as we give a speech, how to be persuasive in what we say. And so he gave us an example. It was a five-minute speech. All of us had to give a five-minute persuasive speech. I don't even remember what I ended up uh, giving as my subject. But his subject was that suicide will, if, if someone commits suicide, they will go immediately to hell. And so this was his persuasive speech to us, and <laughs> there was no scripture at all in his speech. And so I'm just a young buck, I'm just a young guy, and I went up to him after the class and I said, that wasn't persuasive at all. I wasn't persuaded at all that what you were saying is true. What is the basis for what you were trying to persuade us of? It seemed like your own logic. And I think I was the first of many who talked to the professor after that and said, what is the basis for that? Well, in Judaism, they believed that if a person committed suicide, in other words, self-murdered, that they would immediately go to the lowest part of hell. So this is what he's referring to here. He's using sarcasm as he's talking to Jesus. Now, we know that suicide is a sin, but it's not the unpardonable sin. According to Matthew chapter 12 and verse 32, the only unpardonable sin is the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit's work in the world through Christ. And so, for instance, the Pharisees attributed Jesus' miracle-working power to demons rather than the Spirit. 
That particular unpardonable sin was unique to the time of when Jesus was on the earth. The only unpardonable sin today is unbelief. It's the rejection of Christ. This is what he's talking about. All those who do not believe in Jesus will die in their sins. And no one can claim ignorance because God has revealed himself to every person. Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have clearly been perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasonings, and their senseless hearts were darkened. And I know we've looked at this passage a lot. We've considered it when we went to the book of Romans. We've referred to it on numerous occasions. But what, what Paul says there to the church at Rome is this. Because God is creator God, he has implanted in the heart of every person that he has created the reality that he exists. There are no true atheists. I have a book in my library by John Blanchard, and it's called God Doesn't Believe in Atheists. There are no true atheists. Every person who's been created by God has within them, says here that that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Now, that part is referring to general revelation, creation, that that God has, has made and created, and that man can see that because the beautiful design is so evident, there must be a creator, there must be a designer. And so God has implanted in the heart of every person that he exists, and he has given us creation, and so in a general way, every person knows that God exists. And so what happens in the life of an unbeliever? They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They push down the truth that they know, and therefore they say, who are you? Who is God? I don't know that we believe, and so on. They are without excuse, Paul says. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks because they became futile in their reasonings and their senseless hearts were darkened. So I want to talk a little bit about this, this futility of reason because that's exactly what these people are doing as they stand in the temple. They're using human reason, human speculation, and it's all because their senseless hearts are darkened. Second, the second element in the unbelieving Jews' profile is their origin, the unbelieving Jews' origin. And we find this here in verse 23. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. And so in contrast to Jesus, who's from above, meaning heaven, these unbelievers are from below, meaning this world. 
And so what do we know about this world? Well, the word world here is the Greek word cosmos, and in this context, the world refers to the world system, that which is earthly, that which is evil, that which is sin-filled. It's the world system that's controlled by Satan. Now, let me just say this about Satan. While Satan is not omnipotent, and he's not omniscient, and he's not omnipresent, those are attributes only that God has, Satan is extremely powerful. And God has allowed for Satan to be the God, small g, of this world. And so it's no wonder that we see what we see. There's no wonder that there's this spiraling out of control as it relates to common biblical sense or common morality that we find in Scripture. And all of a sudden, now, almost anything and everything that is expounded upon from God's Word, the world says, well, that's absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely silly. It's ridiculous. These unbelieving Jews, while they were religious, they tethered to this world system. They were religious, but they rejected Jesus as Messiah. 2 Corinthians 4 4 says, Their minds were blinded by the God of this world. Ultimately, perhaps the sharpest tool in Satan's toolbox is religion. Religion is blinding. There's this idea that if someone is serious about something, they seem to have their heart in it, they're sincere about it, that it must be true. And you've seen how truth has been adulterated over time. So for the Christian, we know that God's Word is true. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we, we see that it, the Bible calls itself true because it is from the God of truth. But, but truth is slippery now in society, right? Truth is what you think truth is. This, this book was given universally. It was given to all people. All people at least those who have the Scriptures in their language, all people have access to the truth. But the truth now has been redefined. The truth is not objective and universal. Truth is now subjective, and it is personal. So, whatever you think is true for you is true. And who are we to say that that's not true? If you think it's true, then it must be true. It's true for you. And so therefore, you can live your life in accordance with your truth and be good with God. That's what the world says. That's what the unbelieving world says, is that truth is subjective. It's whatever you think truth is. And so for us, as we stand on God's Word, on the truth of God's Word, it's like fingernails on the chalkboard for the world. Because we're saying, no, we're not the determiner of truth. Truth is not personal. Truth is universal. It is given to us by the God of truth, and we are subject to Him and what He says in His Word. And the world goes, whoa. So religious people have a system 
that they follow and that they would say, yes, it is true, but doesn't mean that it is true. It doesn't mean that it is from the God above. It could be from some human who has written uh, something that they have gravitated toward and received, and, and they have believed that it is true. So for them, it's true, but for another religion, it may not be true. So there's all these religions, over 4,000 religions in the world today, all seemingly saying that, well, we know the way, but there is only one way. And Jesus will say in John 14 and verse 6 that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You must believe in me or you will die in your sins. So general revelation is when we see all that God has created. Special revelation is God's word and the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus come to the earth? To reveal the Father to man, to reveal God to man. And so he came as the sinless, perfect God-man. So the sinless, perfect God-man is standing in front of this audience and they're impugning him. Jesus had never sinned. He'd never had a sinful thought. He's standing there as the perfect God-man, the perfect sinless Son of God, and he's receiving all this stuff from these people. They love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. They were blinded to spiritual truth. They were immersed in religion, but they were not regenerate. And of course, we have the same origin, right? All believers have the same origin. A big part of an unbeliever's profile is they think and they act worldly. And we were there at one time. But it's God who makes an unbeliever who's dead in their sins spiritually alive. I am going to take you to a few passages of Scripture today, and really this is more of a catch-up for us. But if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 2, I think it's important that we constantly are comparing Scripture with Scripture as we see what Jesus is sharing with these people and as we look at their uh, life and their unbelief. The epistles are the instruction to the church. And so we have much revelation as it relates to this idea that sinful man is made spiritually alive. So this is what we glory in. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, "...and you were dead in your trespasses and sins." in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, that Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. In other words, children deserving of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God." not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared so that we would walk in them. And so Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus, and he's saying, you used to walk in the same way that unbelievers walk. You used to walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We were the same. We loved the darkness rather than the light. But God did a work through Christ. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus is in the temple. This is why Jesus is teaching the people. He's trying to spare them from what they deserve. He's saying, if you do not believe in me, you're going to get what you deserve. You're going to die in your sins. I saw a quote this past week. I thought it was good. It said this, the world's progress technology, government, and organization can make man better off, but not better. Because we like being better off, it is easy to fall in love with this world. Of course, the same author of the Gospel of John is the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And the Apostle John writes later in 1st John 2, verses 15 through 17, He says, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. And this is why Jesus responds here, I am not of this world. We're not to think worldly, we're not to think earthly, we're to think spiritually. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind, fix your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And so we're to be far more concerned about what God thinks than what the world thinks. Which brings us then to the third element of their profile, and we find it here, and it is their fate, their fate, the unbelieving Jews' fate. Look at verse 24. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. <laughs> so, yeah, I was, it, it's amazing. I mean, uh, the last thing I do before I go to bed on a Saturday night is I review my sermon notes. And so I want to be thinking about the message through the, through the evening. I don't sleep that great, so I'm awake a lot at night. And so I was thinking a lot about this. And I was thinking, how, how can I best illustrate this idea that life is full of conditions? Because that's what Jesus is giving them here, right? He's giving them the, the chief condition. If you do not believe in me, then you will die in your sins. And then I was thinking, you know, life is full of conditions, if you do this, then this will happen. If you fail to do this, then this will happen. Almost everything these days comes with terms and conditions. I mean, you can't even open an app on your phone without agreeing to certain terms and conditions. Everywhere we look, there's terms and conditions, terms and conditions. You want to take out a credit card, there's terms and conditions. If you want to open a, a checking account at the bank, then you have to agree to the terms and conditions. Everything, almost everything, there are conditions. 
Life is full of conditions. And so then I was thinking about, you know, that's true. And in a practical sense, we, we employed that in our home when we were raising our kids. There were conditions for them. And so if you do this, then you will face the consequences of doing that. If you don't do this, you will face the consequences of not doing that. As our kids got older, we had to get more creative in our discipline. I could tell you some stories, and the kids probably could too, uh, funny stories of how our discipline played out in the home at times. But for the most part, our kids were very compliant. Um, proud of them all. They're all walking with God. They're all actively committed to a local church. They're all serving in their local church. They're all raising their own kids to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord. But they all had their moments. Just like we all had our moments when we were kids. And Kathy and I were no experts in parenting, but we figured out real quick that if we wanted our kids to learn and to grow, there had to be certain boundaries there had to be certain expectation, certain conditions. There had to be a consistency in our parenting. We loved our kids, but our goal was not to be their buddies. Our goal was to be their parents, which meant that we needed to love them enough to teach them what was right and what pleased God. You've heard me say this before, but I think that a lot of parents today are giving a lot of mixed signals to their kids. Sometimes they correct their kids, other times they don't correct their kids. Sometimes they discipline their kids, other times they don't. The kids have no idea of the terms and conditions. They have no idea. And you've heard me say permissive parenting is an absolute train wreck. Inconsistent parenting is a train wreck. Kids need to know that these are the conditions upon which we will be operating in our home. If you do this or if you fail to do this, this is what's going to happen. The Bible is full of conditions. And so as I was thinking about this whole idea of, of the Bible being full of conditions and Jesus giving them this condition, he, he says the condition for eternal life is that you must believe in me and if you do, you'll be saved from the due penalty of your sin. So there's a condition for salvation, but this also made me think of there's a condition for our close fellowship with God after we're saved. And so I'd like to take you to 1 John chapter 1, if you would go with me there. 1 John chapter 1. And, and let me just say, as we come to this epistle, the context here is fellowship with God. He's writing to believers. John is writing to believers. Uh, verse 13 of chapter 5, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing to believers. And so when we come to 1 John chapter 1, the context here is fellowship with God. A believer's fellowship with God. Okay? So we see this here in verse 3. We see this again in verse 6. 
And then here in verses 8 and 9, we find the condition for those who fail to confess their sins. Verses 8 and 9 are not referring to salvation, but they're referring to a believer's fellowship with God. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So he's saying to believers, don't say you don't have any sin. We all have sin. We all deal with sin in this life. We've been saved from the penalty of our sin, but we still struggle with the flesh in this life. So don't say that you don't have any sin because that's not true. You have sin. So because you do have sin, verse 9, you must confess your sin. If you want to have the proper fellowship with God, you must confess your sin, regularly confess your sin. What does that mean? See your sin for what it is. See your sin for what it is, an offense to holy God. Have your sins been forgiven? Yes, he's writing in the context of believers here, but this is regarding fellowship with God. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we fail to confess our sins, we break fellowship with God. We don't lose our salvation But we lose the intimacy that we're to have with God. And that's what this word fellowship means. It's the Greek word koinonia, and it means an intimate communion between between two or more people. And so all that to say is we would do well to heed the biblical conditions that are set forth in God's Word. Jesus gives these unbelieving Jews a sure condition. If you do not repent of your sin and believe in me, you will die in your sins. Which then brings us to the fourth element of the profile of these unbelieving Jews, and it is their ignorance. The unbelieving Jews' ignorance. And this is the biggest chunk of the passage here, beginning in verse 25. And so they were saying to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Remember, because these are spiritually appraised things, and so they are not spiritually thinking. They're darkened in their understanding. Verse 28, so Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me, and He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And He spoke these things, and many people believed in Him. And so here's where these people are at. After watching Jesus perform all these miracles and after listening to him preach, they're still willfully ignorant. And they ask this ridiculous question, who are you? For all of his three-year public ministry, Jesus has not only progressively performed signs indicating that he's the Messiah, he's progressively told them exactly who he is. But here we are in the same boat. They're asking the same question, who are you? This could be more sarcasm here, I'm not sure. 
but it's proof positive that they're walking in spiritual darkness. And so Jesus graciously engages with them, and he says, what have I been saying to you from the start? Have you not been listening? Have you not been watching? Haven't you paid attention to my works? And Jesus says, there's a lot I could say right now, and there's a lot I can offer judgment on. But instead, Jesus focuses them back to the Father. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. His submission to the Father is evident. He's demonstrated it in action and in word. Of course, they're not following what he's saying here. And this is the epitome of spiritual blindness. They have no idea that he's speaking with them about God the Father. But then two things happen. First, He tells them that when they lift up the Son of Man, then they will know that I am He. They will know that I am the Messiah. Meaning that when He is lifted up, they will then realize that He is exactly who was predicted to come, the Messiah of the Jews. He's referring to when He's lifted up on the cross of Calvary here to die for the sins of all who would believe in him. And so he's talking here of his impending crucifixion. Okay? But while we're on this last passage that I'm going to take you to, but if you'd go to Matthew chapter 27, I wanted to go back and review what happened when Jesus went to the cross. And this is going to be a little bit long, but I think it's going to be helpful. How will they know that he's the Messiah? That's the question, right? Who are you? (laughs) He says, well, if you've been paying attention, you'd know who I am. And you will eventually know who I am because when I am lifted up, when I go to the cross of Calvary, you will then have it confirmed that I am indeed who I said I was. And so let me read this to you here. This is the account, the account of Jesus' crucifixion. So verse 33, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, and, and by the way, we went, to, uh, we went to Golgotha when I was in Israel. There was a, a, a cliff off the side of a mountain that looked like a skull. And so that was referred to as Golgotha. So you could see the eyes and the nose. Actually, the nose had broken off over the centuries, but you could kind of tell that that was what they had referred to as Golgotha. And so they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull, and they came and they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to watch over him. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, this this was a mocking statement. They were mocking Jesus with this sign. And at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Uh, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, then come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. 
He's the king of Israel. Well, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. And he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who have been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. This is the sinless son of God. This is the sinless son of God receiving the harshest of words, abuse on the cross. And this is what I want to read to you here in verse 45. And now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and he put it on a reed and he gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And again, the veil of the temple, listen to this, and behold, the veil of the temple, this is where Jesus is standing, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. And now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, and they became very frightened and said, what? Truly, this is the Son of God. That's ultimately when they're going to know that what he said about himself was true. So we go back to John chapter 8, and we find the second thing that happens. First, he tells them, one day you'll realize that I'm the Messiah. But second, it says, many of these people believed in him after he spoke these things. At least they outwardly acknowledged who he claimed to be. But the vast majority of the people remained in unbelief. And this is why Jesus gives them all this, this warning. If you fail to believe in me, truly believe in me, you will die in your sins. While Jesus was on the earth, he was in willful submission to the Father. He says, I do nothing on my own initiative. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. And he wanted to show the world what true submission was like. Oh boy, do we mess this up. You know, submission is at the heart of the Christian life. It simply means to willfully defer to the will of another. And because that's what it means, the idea of submission is now viewed negatively by the world. Again, it goes along with their thinking. And sadly, as I understand it, many pastors have stopped preaching on submission because it's very unpopular. But we're to be submissive. Just like Jesus was submissive. First, James 4, 7 says that we are to be submissive to God. Second, Ephesians 1, 22 says that the church is to be submissive to Christ. 
Third, because pastors and elders are the under-shepherds of the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5, 5 and Hebrews 13, 7 says those in the church are to be submissive to them. Indeed, even obey them. And we can go on and on. Children are to be submissive to their parents. Employees are to be submissive to their employers. Citizens are to be submissive to their governing authorities. Wives are to be submissive to their husbands. Why? Because that's God's design. We should be good with that. Whatever God's design is, that should be good enough for us. We're not to think like the world. We're not to act worldly. We're not to think worldly. You know, you read the account in Matthew of Jesus' crucifixion. It's hard. I went to the movie, The Passion of the Christ, when it first came out. Did any of you guys see that? I about couldn't take it. I was, I don't know, into the scene of, of how they treated Jesus and, and put him on the cross. I, I told Kathy, I, I, I can't. I'm going to have to leave. Jesus was treated like a lawbreaker, like a criminal, like a heretic like a blasphemer, but he was none of those things. He was and is the sinless Son of God. His profile is impeccable, but the profile of unbelievers is very predictable. They're sarcastic about the things of God. They're worldly in their thinking and living. They're willfully ignorant about the glories of Christ, and all of this determines their fate. Folks, all that applied to the scribes and the Pharisees directly applies to us as well. All people, those who fail to believe in Jesus, will die in their sins. The terms and conditions of life. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ or you will die in your sins. It's amazing that Jesus would even give people that put him on the cross, that ridiculed him and mocked him and did all these things to him, he gave them the same opportunity as he gives to people that think that they're really good and religious. Believe in me. This is the message that we've been given to give to the world. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, surely in a room this size this morning, there are people that are listening to what Your Word has to say. They're listening to the message. They're listening to these words about the terms and conditions of eternal life. To have eternal life, one must repent of their sin and believe in Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet we know in your word as well, that people are dead in their trespasses and sins. They want nothing to do with Jesus, just like these religious people. And so, Lord, we're asking you today to open the eyes. Open the eyes of those who may be in unbelief today so that they will see their sin for what it is and they'll desire to repent and turn to your Son, the Lord Jesus, in faith. Thank you for saving us. 
Thank you for going through all that you went through on that cross that day. Just for us. Just for us. Your love for us should be the same kind of love that we have for you. And so this is what we pray for today. We thank you and praise you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.